Welcome to the 68th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of anti-racism, emergency management, and disaster research with two amazing scholars, Felicia Henry and Monica Sanders. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com or iTunes or Stitcher, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 17th, 2020, there are 8,269,774 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 8,092,109 cases yesterday. Of those 2,150,293 are in the United States. That's up from 2,127,745 yesterday. There are now a total of 117,423 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 116,700 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Activists Hold Funeral Procession in Trenton for Prisoners Who Have Died in New Jersey Due to COVID-19. This was published May 28th in Planet Princeton by Crystal Knapp. A procession of vehicles drove past the war memorial in Trenton, New Jersey in late May to raise awareness about the plight of prisoners in New Jersey and remember inmates who have died from COVID-19 complications. Advocates for prisoners' rights say the state's management of the pandemic inside prisons has been a total failure and that there's been a lack of transparency from the prison system administration. This Say Their Names funeral procession, and that's hashtag Say Their Names, funeral procession was coordinated by the New Jersey Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement Coalition to remember the prisoners and call on the state to change its policies and procedures. New Jersey has the highest per capita rate of COVID-19-related prison deaths in the nation at 238 deaths per 100,000 prisoners. As of May 28, more than 43 inmates had died, and 1,592 prisoners tested positive for COVID-19 in the state. The state has been completely ineffective, said organizer Amos Cayley, before the funeral procession. Furloughs were supposed to release almost 3,000 people. Family members of inmates who died as a result of COVID-19 said because of how the state handled the situation, their loved ones died in prison even though they had never been given a death sentence. Instead of taking responsibility and trying to do better, your advisors have chosen to diminish the gravity of the situation, said the Reverend Charles Boyer of Salvation and Social Justice. Advocates say New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's executive order number 124 was supposed to help the vulnerable prison population. It has been an inexcusable failure of epic proportions, the funeral procession organizer said in a statement. Meanwhile, as the governor continues to hide behind the Department of Corrections and the Juvenile Justice Commission, 
Human beings are dying every day and leaving their loved ones with little more to mourn their memory and a bad excuse. They were never supposed to be sentenced to death, but Governor Murphy has done just that. Murphy defended the actions of his administration, saying eligibility for prison furloughs was subject to a comprehensive review. He said inmates were required to have a place to live after they were released, for example. I mourn the loss of every single life in this state, period, full stop, Murphy said. The New Jersey Supreme Court is weighing the release of more prisoners. The American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey and the state's public defender told the court that the process for furloughing nonviolent inmates and those at a higher risk of COVID-19 complications has lacked both urgency and transparency. They asked the court to speed up the release of prisoners and expand eligibility, arguing that prisoners scheduled to finish their sentences within a year should be considered for release. Assistant Attorney General Stephanie Cohen, who represented the New Jersey Department of Corrections at a day-long video hearing, said the release of prisoners so far, along with enhanced cleaning measures at prisons and more testing, were adequate to protect prisoners and staff. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today, and I'm thrilled to introduce my two guests. Felicia Henry is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. Her research interests include race, ethnicity, gender, criminal justice, mass incarceration, social vulnerability, and resilience in disasters and communities. She is a licensed social worker, and Felicia received her Master's of Social Work degree from the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Felicia is a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow. Let me also introduce Monica Sanders. Monica is the director of the Bill Anderson Fund at the University of Delaware. She also serves as an associate professor in sociology and criminal justice. She's taught in the Emergency and Disaster Management Program at Georgetown University's School of Continuing Studies and the Washington and Lee University School of Law, where she created and taught a course on disaster law and policy. Her current work and interests include data and disasters, legal rights, and how to use technology to reach vulnerable populations. Professor Sanders also served as Senior Legal Advisor for International Response and Programs at the American Red Cross where she focused on international disaster response and humanitarian assistance principles. Her response and oversight work included being a senior committee counsel for both the House of Representatives and Senate Committee on Homeland Security. In those roles, she focused on oversight of disaster response and recovery programs, cybersecurity, and critical infrastructure protection. So Monica and Felicia, welcome to COVID Calls. So what I'd like to do and what I do and all these sessions and starting out is just to um, ask people where they're calling in from and get a sense of how the pandemic is playing out right there at this time. And in these recent weeks, I've also been asking people if they could also give us a sense of kind of protest activities have been happening where they are as well. Felicia, may I begin with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am currently in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, I think Delaware has about a little over 10,000 cases and about a little over 400 deaths. So that's kind of how the pandemic is is coming here. Um, we're moving into phase two of reopening. So very interesting to see some businesses are opening, restaurants are opening, folks are kind of able to go out and about with masks, of course. Um, but there's a little bit more life than, um, say, last month. 
Um, and in terms of the protests, so I actually live on one of the main streets in Wilmington, Delaware, and just about two weeks ago, it was uh, all shuttered because a lot of the protests that came forward through here um, actually uh, resulted in a lot of the you know windows being smashed out, that kind of thing. So we, for a solid two weeks, they actually just opened, um, I want to say last week, uh, there was police officers on every corner yellow tape everywhere, no one in, no one out, that kind of thing. Um, so very interesting to see that kind of occupation um, in the middle of all that's going on. Well, thank you for that update. Monica, same question to you. Um, so I am calling in from Northern Virginia, just across the river from DC. Um, it's been interesting because of course I was watching, I had just left downtown D.C. two Monday nights ago when the infamous tear gassing incident happened in D.C. and to see the National Guard as well as two other local police agencies make the decision to decide that they needed to use that level of force against an otherwise manageable protest um, in front of the White House. I described it as it felt like some sort of dystopian dream just the visual of it was impactful. Um, what wasn't reported about the protests was the spirit and the level of engagement in the crowd, despite the strong arm of the state, the determination to continue to get the point across and to stay focused on what was important, as opposed to the activity around them, given especially how dangerous it was for everyone, um, was incredibly impactful. Um, the difference in the way that it looked in DC, close to the seat of government versus being in a suburb. I live in a suburb of Alexandria where the chief of police held a memorial for George Floyd, helped remove a Confederate statue from our neighborhood and made the intention to have a vigil that night as opposed to allowing his police officers to go and join what was happening on the other side of the river. Um, so the statement of depending on who you are and where you live and how you live, your relationship with the police can be very different. And the outcomes, even in the kind of crisis that we're living in now are very different. That those of us who live in this particular space had the privilege of engaging in a calm, rational dialogue with our police force. People who lived just on the other side of the Potomac from us were having their health put at risk by virtue of having to protest tear gassed, fear of their lives and their safety. And there was no dialogue. There was a very violent, whether people were touched or not, that level of tear gassing and rubber billet, um, bullets is an act of violence. Um, so the, the visual and the spirit, but also the clear lines of inequality were very clear to me and have been very clear to me over the past couple of weeks living so close to the source of so many of these things that we're talking about that we're going to be talking about now. I want to particularly just put a pin in this, in this issue of the variability of the relationship between communities and police and different groups within those communities and police across the United States. Obviously the, the media, I believe, try to do as good a job as they can and be sensitive to local stories, but there's a sort of meta story that emerged that it's probably mostly true. And yet somehow it, it leaves out some opportunities for dialogue that you're describing, Monica, I think, in, yeah. in your initial discussion there. Monica, I want to stay with you, if you don't mind. Could you just tell us a little 
bit. I mean, you have such an interesting biography and, and you've worked in many different domains, but in, in more recent times, I mean, you've moved into the disaster research space. Can you tell us a little bit, like some of the key questions you're interested in now, the kind of work you're doing right now? Um, absolutely. And I'll just preface it, put it in context. The thread that connects all of these jobs and leads me to the research is that I'm a native of New Orleans. My changing of careers, part of my education was interrupted by Hurricane Katrina. So this is in the first conversation about what I call complex emergencies, where you have a number of law enforcement events with the natural disaster framed the way that I was going to approach my practice in law and the decision to continue my education. Um, I spent some time working on technology and disasters in the Red Cross, um, a lot of opportunities to use drones, GIS location data to make sure that our response was right sized to the community, which I think is an important note to underscore. And I've also served as a policy director and counsel for an internet infrastructure group. And so bringing all this together when we're talking about serving vulnerable communities, because that's specifically what I focus on, specifically poor people, black and brown people and their struggles of being noticed and served appropriately. It's that access to technology, there's a divide there, but then also there's a lot of opportunity to make sure that we reach those communities outside of our mainstream constructs in disaster emergency management. So that's what interests me. I can take inf longitudinal information from health services agencies, from after action reports from emergency managers and combine it with what we know about browser and cell phone data and get an accurate perception of the level of poverty, even down to block by block of what needs to be done in the neighborhood. So then when people say we didn't know, we didn't see, we didn't know how to preposition this and deliver that, there's actual data that can tell us different and help us to respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating to me, the, the more disaster researchers I get to know over the years, it's not always the case, but there's usually some disaster. Sometimes now it's a slow disaster, maybe climate change, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's an event um, that got them into this work. And the level of commitment they bring is often because of some injustice they perceived um, yeah. in that moment. It was 9-11 for me. I think for others I've talked to, it's the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. It's Fukushima you're describing. Katrina, let me just stay with one follow-up question for you. If, if there were, can you highlight for us some of the technological needs for the African-American community at that time in New Orleans that became evident through that disaster? Well, what's interesting about Katrina 2005 is we were living in pre-social media times. Facebook had just migrated from being a thing that was on college campuses. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have these large platforms and the opportunity for video to go viral. We had smartphones, but they were quite clunky. And we, a lot of us were still, to be honest, we were opening those like little flip Nokias. So a lot of opportunities <laughs> for video. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to name names, but I know who you're talking about. <laughs> had those. So what's missing, what was missing um, between then and now is the availability of social media, the availability of smartphones and to be able to go live and to demonstrate things. But something that was missing then and is still missing now is a lot of urban areas, the terminology that we use to signal about certain places, were internet dead zones. Hmm. 
meaning the ability to connect to Wi-Fi, to have a constant Wi-Fi signal, to be able to receive information, important information, and to give that information is largely unavailable in a lot of poor, mainly African-American and also Latinx neighborhoods. The lower ninth ward was then and is now an internet dead zone. If you drive over there, you're down to three bars and no Wi-Fi. So what does that mean for your ability to get important public information about the potential for catastrophic events? Or to build resilience, because so much of our commerce and business education is done in the digital economy, that change that alters your ability to build community resilience when you live in one of those dead zones. Okay, thank you so much for that context. Felicia, let me come to you. Same question, you're at a different stage of the career, but also doing fascinating work and research. Can you take us inside the world of your own research? What kind of questions motivate you? Yeah, so uh, my background is social work and criminal justice, and even coming to that field is based on um, just my own personal experiences. I'm from New York City, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And so seeing kind of the interactions within my own neighborhood, my own high school, having to advocate for why our high school shouldn't close when, you know, high school is just a few blocks from us that looked very different in demographics and composition, did not have to have that same kind of fight. Um, and so kind of that social justice, that advocacy is really what propelled me into the work um, that I do now. And so seeing uh, whether it was my friends, whether it was my family, whether it was um, partners, uh, interact and engage with this criminal justice system in a way that um, didn't seem to make any sense, but I didn't have the language for it yet. I didn't understand why it seemed that um, we had more contact than uh, kind of, you know, other folks. And so um, kind of got to college and, and took a class in criminal justice, took a class in social work and started to get the language, started to learn, um, you know, what mass incarceration was. Uh, you know, started to learn what disproportionality meant, um, started to learn uh, how uh, neighborhoods are over-policed, how we ended up having these kinds of contacts with the criminal justice system that were not uh, coincidental, that were not, uh, uh, you know, just because we were just so bad or the folks were, were bad. So um, that's how I got to the work. And so I've been working in social work, working in criminal justice for a few years and then decided to come back to school to get my PhD. And interestingly enough, in terms of the disaster intersection, I had no prior uh, experience with disasters. It was never something that I was thinking about. Um, but I went to a presentation at the Disaster Research Center and uh, one of the co-directors, Dr. Walkendorf, Trisha Walkendorf, was talking about um, one of the students who had use disaster as a lens to look at some social inequality. And immediately in my head, it made so much sense. And I wanted to bridge the gap between disasters and criminal justice and to start thinking about uh, what do disasters look like for people that are incarcerated, for people that are on some sort of supervision from the state, and how can we make the case that they are also vulnerable populations and deserve to um, be looked at and, and, and talked about. And so a lot of my work is centering criminal justice populations and now bringing that kind of centering into the disaster realm. We had uh, Trisha Walkendorf on COVID calls on May 28th, if anybody wants to check out that episode. And she's one of the people who I describe as a, a disaster polymath. Um, and and she was a joy to talk to. And as always, I learned from just keeping a conversation of an hour with her. So I'm not surprised at all, Felicia, that she would be a person that could open 
um, those those questions for you. And I'm, I'm glad that you're there. And, and I want to follow up on that because Felicia's a Bill Anderson fellow. And Monica, you're the director of, of this program. And I wonder, I want to kind of hear from both of you about that. And I have a small Bill Anderson story I can share too. But Monica, can I start with you? What is the Bill Anderson Fund? The Bill Anderson Fund is named for a researcher by the name of Dr. William Averett Anderson. He had a prolific career, the World Bank, the National Science Foundation, one of the founders of the Disaster Research Center when it was at Ohio State. Then we still are using information from his field work for his time as field director at the DRC at the University of Delaware. His wife, Norma, shares the story of every time he would go and do field work or speak or present, he would come home and hold up a number of fingers on his hand. And it was always less than five. Like he never made it off that one hand, which represented the number of people in the space that looked like him. Upon his passing, Mrs. Anderson, and while he was active, he was always a champion for making sure that he mentored and supported and uplifted other researchers and practitioners of color, other people from marginalized backgrounds. When he passed away in 2013, his wife decided to set up the fund with the same mission that he practiced in his work, was to increase the number of faces and ideas and people that you see in disaster research and practice. So that when we go into the communities, you're bringing that richness of perspective and cultural competence into the community. And so the BAF has... More than 25 wonderful alumni now. I have to, you know, because I, I tweeted you and like, like, you have to get my Bill Anderson Fund fellows. I, mean, <laughs> I am an avid evangelical for the fellows and alumni. Um, we've got 26 wonderful alumni in positions ranging from new in their career researchers to people holding important positions like big city emergency managers. And now we've got 33 fellows that are doing research on a wide variety of things like the future Dr. Henry here, who's doing the important work that she's doing right now on incarceration. Felicia, just to you, I mean, uh, your sense of what it means to be part of that community? Yeah, so it's really important for me. So like I said, came to the disaster field not having any background. And for, I think I am um, really grateful and blessed to have met the BAF so early on in my disaster kind of career um, because I didn't have the opportunity to think about whether or not there was someone that looked like me in this field that could help me, that could guide me, can mentor, um, can, you know, share alongside of me what it is like to be a student in this field and not have that kind of representation. So for me to be a BAF a fellow um, is really important, really significant to see black and brown faces around me um, and to hear from them, to listen to them, to learn from them, to know, hey, you know, type in the group chat, what is a good foundational text to do this or to do that, um, to read your work, to be pushed and, and inspired. And I think that that's really important because what that tells me is that even with, um, you know, even with the field, you know, still kind of not looking like us, it still tells me that there are folks that are really scholars, right? And I think that that's important to make the distinction that we are scholars and we are here and we are contributing and making, um, you know, the field a better place in terms of what we're offering because of our experiences. So it's really important for me and to me to be a BAF fellow and to have that network and circle. 
thank you for sharing that. I, I had the opportunity to interview Bill Anderson, and, and right now I'm trying to locate the audio recording of that, but um, some elements of that interview made it into my uh, book, The Disaster Experts. And, and in fact, I was, I was really privileged when I was working on that project. I was able to interview Enrico Corntelli and Russell Dines, Kathleen Tierney, um, and uh, Bill Anderson. Um, and, you know, Kathleen is still very active, you know, outstanding researcher. And in both my conversations with Dr. Tierney and with, and with Dr. Anderson, you know, I wasn't prepared maybe or courageous enough to even ask some of the harder questions at that time about how much difficult it must have been for them to be first woman in the team or maybe the only woman in the, in the research team. And in, in the case of Bill, that, you know, the only African-American, as you said, Monica, you know, he was not only in a research team, usually that would be all white and all male, but he was going to places like Alaska after the Alaska earthquake and, and going into emergency operations centers, which were often staffed by, and this is the Vietnam era. This is the civil rights era. And here's Bill Anderson with his raincoat and his, and I've seen some of these pictures and his tape recorder. And he's there to ask them hard questions about how they do their work. And the amount of guts that that must have taken has always impressed me. Um, but then, of course, the scholarship is tremendous. I mean, just absolutely pathbreaking. And, and in fact, there's, you know, I'll just quote one little line from something he published in the, in the 1960s in which he and Russell Dines were actually really being extremely critical of the people who were funding their research and talking about the failures at that time, whether or not civil defense preparations were adequate to prepare American cities for things other than nuclear war. And the general conclusion they were coming to was no. And he said, I love this line, he says, if civil defense could not respond to these disasters like an earthquake, um, in the that Anderson concluded it would not become magically capable and trusted in the event of a nuclear war. I mean, it, it took, that was, that was, um, honest and courageous scholarship for that time. And he continued to write, um, and he wrote some of the earliest work, co-authored some of the earliest work about what, what they called civil disturbances. But I mean, this is the era of the post Martin Luther King assassination, um, protests and police riots and what was going on in Newark, and what was going on in Ohio State, um, in cities across America. And so he was really at the forefront of that as well. I've wondered in these last days what kind of work he would be doing in this in this moment at this time. So um, just one little thing to contribute there. But I, I, I'm thrilled that this fund exists and that that legacy, not only of the great scholarship, but also um, being willing to to blaze a trail. And I guess that process, I mean, it's so long deferred and, and it's absolutely necessary now, just as it was then. Um, yeah, Monica, absolutely. did you want to, I don't know if you, if that strikes a chord with anything you know about Bill or any of his work that you, you find interesting, but I, I thought I would share that. So, and I shared this with Mrs. Anderson and actually the search committee, um, because I heard about this position from one of my old faculty directors at Washington Lee, um, which has a poignancy to it in and of itself. Um, if you know the history of that organization, says, so, you know, this kind of sounds like you. 
And when I was doing research, I had like this hair on the back of your arm standing up moment because there was this picture of Dr. Anderson with his recorder and his notepad in Turkey, having done a field assessment and an advisement. And I looked closely at the picture and I recognized some of the memorials. In 2011, I went to Turkey to do an advisement about building codes and legal rights and resilience. And I was the only person who looked like me there. And I said, how many decades apart were, was this picture taken? And he and I existed in almost the same context. That's not okay. It was the admiration for, you know, I'm living in the age of social media and have other resources that he might not have. Speaking of guts, right, to be in the in the 70s or 80s going to Turkey because Turkey was different then and it's different now. Um, that weighed heavily on me, but the fact that I would have gone home and held up one finger as well, some 20 odd years removed, really underscored the reason why I wanted to take the role on, but also the reason why it's so important that this and organizations like it continue to exist. remind people you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Monica Sanders and Felicia Henry. And I want to turn our conversation now a little bit more squarely to what's been going on with the pandemic and connect that with um, the issue of the murder of George Floyd. Felicia, I want to quote from your article, and I tweeted this out today. I hope people will read it. They can also find it on Medium or on Felicia's website, and I'll have you give us that um, in fact, maybe you should give it to us right now. How do we find your article that you published um, recently about a mass black death, Felicia? Yeah. You can find it on Medium if you uh, go to Medium directly, or it's actually on um, our page, our department page. So if you go to the sociology department at UD, that's soc.udel.edu, and it'll actually be on the homepage. Cannot recommend. This is required reading, and I'm just going to give one little quote. Mass black death isn't happenstance. It is intentional, structural, and deeply rooted. It is the result of white supremacy that is embedded with violence, is violence. So my question to you, Felicia, you know, sort of building on that on that essay is I'd like to hear a little bit of it, your thinking of how you explain how history has prepared the way for, for this convergence of the pandemic in the black community and the violence visited on the black community um, that we witnessed with George Floyd's murder, because here we have two disasters that are both um, disproportionately affecting African-Americans and they're converging now to make some sort of a new disaster. And you situate this historically. Can I get you, can I draw you out a little bit on that? How did you, how do you put that together? What inspired you to write this, this piece? What have people said about it? Yeah, so what inspired me to write, what really uh, kind of gave me the um was that I was looking at the television, kind of seeing these deaths all over again, right? Seeing these hashtags, seeing people call for justice, um, people, you know, protesting the streets and, and 
try to understand like what was going on, but then think about the fact that this was not the first time, right? So I'm not that old. I'm, I'm still pretty young, but in my own lifetime, I have tweeted, I have posted on Facebook, I have shared countless names of folks that have been killed by police violence and it is not new, right? And so when I was sitting down and I was thinking about that, and then I was also looking at the news and seeing uh, the reports about COVID-19 disproportionately impacting black and brown communities, but then seeing a different kind of protest to open back up the economy. Um, I started looking at them together and saying, well, this is really um, interesting because we're having these calls to open back up the economy and these protests in the streets that, you know, are being kind of welcomed and 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 being uh, put out and celebrated um but yet these protests over here that are protesting about a uh, black life are squashed right are silenced and so when i started thinking about those two kind of images in my head this is how uh the essay started to form and for me i had to situate it um in the context that this is not new. What we're seeing on our television screens, what we're seeing on our cell phones, what we're seeing on our social media feeds is not new. Like, yes, cameras or social media has allowed us to share this information in a way that we haven't in the past, but what we're seeing, the images, those relationships are not new. If we think about mass Black death um, as violence and thinking about it as a historical violence, if we go back to slavery, we understand that there were these public watchings, right? Like, be careful, you do this and see what will happen, right? So when we're talking about being whipped or we're talking about being sold or we're talking about families being drawn apart, folks had to watch that, you know, enslaved Africans had to watch their family members, their friends be put on the auction block, be be, be sold, be um, um, whipped. And so when we think about Black people seeing these images, we're not seeing something that we have not seen, like the body keeps the score, right? The trauma, like this is historical trauma that we're seeing. And I think that it's important for us to make the links and make the ties to now, um, because when we're thinking about COVID disproportionately impacting Black communities and we're thinking about mass Black death, what we're really seeing is that decades, centuries after centuries, decades after decades, uh, Black people, even when we're thinking about uh, the kinds of healthcare, right, from slavery onward, when we think about healthcare, when we're thinking about uh, needs, educational needs, social service needs, all of these things have always been disproportionately, uh, or Black people have always been disproportionately locked out of healthcare or education um, or any kind of social uh, advancement opportunities. And so when we're looking at COVID-19 now in 2020 and we're looking at these protests now, what we're seeing is folks really realizing and starting to make those ties. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, okay, for Black women, for example, you know, Black women go to hospitals and doctors don't believe them, that they're in pain. They think they're super women, right? Or we think about the disproportionate numbers for Black women that are giving birth or the ones that die from childbirth. Like, these things are not new or not, um, you know, a, a happenstance. We're talking about centuries worth of, of white supremacy, centuries worth of violence that are now, is now converging in some, in some ways for COVID-19. So when we're thinking about who is 
um, being locked out of access for healthcare now, where we think about these communities that are ravaged by COVID-19, we're thinking about the same communities who are impoverished, right? We're thinking about the same communities who have been locked out of opportunities to get employment, to get proper housing. And so I think that really for me, as I was sitting down and, and writing this, but even sitting down and thinking about it, I started to recognize that we really need to pull in the conversations around systemic oppression in our conversations about disasters, right? In our conversations about mass black death, what we're seeing on our TV screens, because otherwise we'll uh, kind of fall into the trap of making it isolated incidents and then we won't understand the significance of the moment, right? We're talking about a legacy. And so in order to interrupt or dismantle what we're seeing now, we have to pull in those historical so for me, it was just a way to kind of reconcile these two things that I was seeing and understand that, you know, I wasn't going crazy by thinking, wait a minute, this feels familiar and really kind of uh, bringing it uh, together. I, I think bringing those things into the same frame is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. And in fact, at, th- yeah. at this point, I don't even know what we're doing if we're not doing that. that and what you just sort of very concisely described is a methodology in which we can make sense of disproportionate rates of disease, disproportionate rates of violence. But the thing I've been thinking a lot about, the fact that George Floyd had COVID-19 and, and then put that in a frame, but it demands attention to, um, to a long history and, and not just individual murders, as you said. I mean, we can talk about Emmett Till. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. We can talk about um, many civil rights leaders who suffered violence or even assassination. We can talk about them individually. But you're talking about stitching together a systemic picture, which often doesn't have boldface names. It's locked up in, in policies and procedures of redlining and banking and social welfare policy. Monica, I, I just want to bring this to you. I mean, I mean, that's a that's a lot of work to do. It's important work, putting mm-hmm. that history together. And then we have to somehow operationalize that into emergency management, into Correct. policing. How can we, let's, let's talk about that. What, how do we make progress with that? We don't have to, we must. And the first part of it is reframing how we think about emergency management. We think about serving as many people as we can as opposed to serving the people who need it most. Because when you take any microcosm of society, and let's pretend it's a diverse community, and you're having a conversation about resourcing, for me, poverty is the intersection of all of this, and it's by design because of all the things that you mentioned, lack of access to credit lines, redlining, housing discrimination, medical discrimination. If you're an emergency manager and you have a map of your city, you know where the poor people live and you know who lives in that neighborhood. That's where you're going to find all of the intersections of need and vulnerability. So if you operationalize your planning towards serving the people who need it most and delivering services and ameliorating them first, guess what's going to happen? The people who every intersection that you move, if you remove the intersection of race, 
of gender, of sexual expression, of immigration, of limited language skills, as you remove each one of those intersections, you're going to find more resilience and the ability to self-mitigate. And then someone like me who lives in a disproportionate neighborhood with a lot of people with grad degrees and disposable income, guess what? By the time you've gotten to us, I probably need my lights turned back on and some money to replace what I spent. Or maybe I need my roof fixed, but that's the most of it. It's not a life or death decision. If you target your planning towards the people for whom the response in that first 72 hours that we're looking at, it is a life or death decision. That's how you operationalize it. We need to reframe how we think emergency management and think of the people who, what level of emergency is my population at? Mm-hmm. Because for all of the types of people that you and Felicia just so wonderfully articulated, emergency for me might be a source of anxiety. Emergency for one of my sisters that's a single female head of household and a so-called essential worker in this pandemic that lives in a poor neighborhood is the life or death situation. And we need to respond to that first. Can you, can we go a step further and maybe give us an example of a kind of a policy, a, a protocol, a practice in emergency management? You don't have to pick on any particular agency, but, but, or a kind of conversation that happens in emergency planning. And, and I, and I should say, I, mean, I have enormous respect for, for what emergency managers try to do. I've often felt, and this is to Felicia's point, and I've talked to Jim Kendra about this too, that I feel like emergency management often, the criticism of emergency managers in disaster is, how come you didn't solve 200 years of deferred social problems in America while you were pulling people out of the tree? It's an almost impossible set of tasks, and yet, of course, absolutely essential. So my question to you, Monica and then Felicia, is give us an example of like one practice or one thing that you could start with to be to begin to turn that in thinking inside out, which is, I think, how you're describing it. Um, the way we do individual assistance, it's based on home ownership. And every disaster, even though we know it's based on home ownership and we quite don't think about renters or people who live in informal settings, and then because I used to do oversight on this, we patch it up some sort of way and then go to Congress and try to justify why the agency funded this extra spending on these people who aren't accounted for in the policy. When this is a great thing for emergency managers, because irrespective of what you think about social justice or equality, it's a problem that emergency managers and federal agencies face every time we have a catastrophic declaration, a major declaration is, oh, we had to pull all this money and reallocate it because there were these people that we knew were going to have this problem, but there's not a policy adjustment for them. Mm -hmm. Advocate for the next time Congress does a big reauthorization of a bill under our individual assistance legislation, our regulations, we need to put together a program that's specifically for people who are not homeowners. Thank you for that very specific example. Felicia, I know you're interested in incarcerated populations. Maybe this is a way to, could you give us some, some of your thinking about how Drawing that together with emergency management can help us move this conversation and move action. Yeah, so uh, for incarcerated populations, and and that gets a little tricky too. So I'll I'll even go to folks that are under supervision but in the community. So folks mm-hmm. that might be on parole or probation. Um, what we've found, and even kind of just looking through the policies, is that policies specifically address what folks should do in a disaster. 
And that's highly problematic because what that does, it leads people to make the decisions between their security and their conditions, fulfilling their conditions and their safety, right? And so what that puts that individual in a position to do is say, okay, well, if the conditions of my supervision say that I can't cross state lines, I can't evacuate out of my um, kind of area, but everyone is evacuating and I have to get out of here because I lived in, I live in an impoverished neighborhood. And so, you know, the damage is going to be catastrophic anyway. What should I do? What should I do? Let me call my probation officer or my parole officer. Oh, they're not answering. What should I do? What should I do? I'll just go over state lines. And then all of a sudden we have a violation and now that person is back in prison or back in jail. And so I think that specifically looking at populations like that, we will understand that, wait a minute, there aren't guidance, there isn't guidance, there aren't policies or procedures in place for them for their specific uh, uh, kind of conditions. And so I think that, you know, when we, when we think about emergency managers, we're thinking about these responses, what we really should be doing, even moving further from, okay, vulnerable populations, women, children, elderly, okay. Like, yes, we want to identify those populations, but then start to think about, okay, who are these folks that I'm talking about, where are they? Where are they located? Um, you know, what are the specific kind of needs in this community? And how can I ensure that I'm not necessarily trying to do undo 200 years, but I am addressing that in the context of what I'm doing, right? And I think that this is not necessarily a concrete thing, but one thing that is really important is to ensure that the voices of those that are impacted have a voice in the conversation. They are centered in the conversation. And I think what that ends up doing is it, it allows emergency managers and other folks that are, are kind of responding to disasters not to have to think of every single solution, right? Because folks know what they need. Folks know what they're experiencing. Folks know how they're going to be impacted. They know that, okay, well, if you say that this is going to be a program only for homeowners, it's going to lock me out. Or if you say, hey, let's just build trailers right here, they'll know, actually, that might not work. And so listening to the voices of those that are impacted is highly important because, one, it it takes away some of that pressure to figure everything out. But two, it also ensures that folks can be resilient, can be self-sustaining, and can actually take those things that, you know, whether it's funding or assistance or whatever, take that and once FEMA leaves or once everyone else leaves, actually have uh, a community to return back to, right? But we, don't, we won't know those things and we won't have um, the real the real ability to do those things unless we hear them and not hear them as in like tokenize them, but actually center them. I want to stay with this for a little bit more, Felicia I'm, and Monica. You're, I'm sure you're both well aware there's sort of a longstanding tension in academia about the kind of divide between researchers and activists, and and that there's this concern, and this is true even in my field in history that that you can, you, yeah, you can write an opinion piece. That's okay. Um, you could go to a protest. That's that's okay. Um, Maybe don't wear your university T-shirt. We were actually told that once, not on this case, but previously. Um, but, but boy, let's keep a bright line between research, science, and activism. And I just, I just want to give a shout out because Felicia, you're the founder of an organization called Behind the Walls, Between the Lines, um, which you describe as a movement to deepen awareness of the legacy of racial inequity in America, focused on the criminal justice system. So there you have an advocacy organization. You're a researcher. 
how do we, maybe I'm too worried about different categories here. I don't know, but can, can you help us understand a little bit about how a researcher can also, you said we should be listening more, but in my experience, listening doesn't happen without uh, some strong encouragement that people should listen. So talk to us a little bit about these multiple roles and how organizations like yours can, can fill in there. Yeah, so I started Behind the Walls Between the Lines about six years ago, and it was actually my attempt to bring in kind of my uh, skills and, and interest as a spoken word artist, talking about kind of these disproportionalities and mass incarceration, but also bridge the social work and the criminal justice that I was actually doing in school, right? So what are all of these things that I'm learning, and how can I pull all those things together? Um, and so what in terms of bridging those things together or pulling those things together or being kind of this activist scholar in some ways, I know that there, and granted I'm still early in my career, but um, I know that there are some ways in which that uh, that that marriage is kind of um, not dis disapproved, but like, you know, like, mm, let's not do that. Like, let's be purely research. But I think that the way that I come to my research and the things that I research are based on my experiences in my activism. Right. And so when I think about the population, right, folks that have been impacted by the criminal justice system, folks that have been um, impacted by racial injustice, when I think about those populations, when I live my life in the skin that I live, when I'm looking at the work that I, I research, I'm bringing all of that in, which is not to say that, you know, there's this uh, inability to parse these things out and be objective in, in some ways as objective as you can be, but it does mean that the frame, the context that I'm coming to the work allows me to know that when I'm doing this kind of activism work, uh, folks don't have a voice. Folks don't, uh, they aren't centered. They're marginalized in these conversations. So if I'm centering them here and I'm sticking to the principle of centering them in the activism, then when I come to my research, I'm sticking to the principle of centering them, right? So when we're putting out all of these publications, whether they're about disaster, sociology, criminal justice, we have to also ask ourselves, like, who is this for? Who's the audience for this? And what's the purpose of this right? Is there, is this purpose for me to get tenure or this purpose for me to sound like really eloquent that I know everything? Or is this purpose really to shift the way that we look at whatever the, the topic is or whatever, you know, the, the audience is. And so for me personally, that's what I'm doing. I'm finding ways that, okay, let me talk about COVID-19 and uh, criminal justice populations, or let me talk about, you know, black, uh, black women or black communities and, you know, criminal justice. For me, it says there are populations that we are not talking about. Let's bring them to the forefront because as Monica said so well earlier, when we start to bring the populations that are the most marginalized and when we start to censor them, we learn the best practices that then can ripple out to the rest of, of the population. So that's that's how I think about it. I frame those things. I don't think about them as separate things. They are who I am both. And so I think marrying them or, or, or marrying them or bringing them together allows me not to feel kind of torn or, or in different pieces because I know that the frames, the context is what I'm bringing. This is a total masterclass. I, I mean, what you just did was you actually just flipped it all. Yeah. You flipped mm -hmm. the script. I mean, the idea was that it has often been, why can't we get good research into policy? I can't tell you how many papers I've read and written parts of it and lamented the failure of policy uptake 
And you just described a model that, that and Monica, I'm see what you think about it, that we need to have more open doors in the academy for the energy of activists to actually come in and then maybe provide spaces where they feel welcome, comfortable, and provide the kind of research skills that we can in the social sciences to then create a much more, I think, powerful um, engine for change. I, I don't know. Monica, what's your take on, on all of this? Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, speaking of the term masterclass, Felicia just gave us a masterclass of a woman in the academy bringing her full and complete self to bear in her work, not presenting herself as a caricature of one or the other or as a one-dimensional figure. All of who she is as a human being was just expressed in that answer and just expressed in her work. And the academy fails miserably at giving women and people of color the space to bring the complexities of who they are as human beings into their work. Which leads me to answering your question, because <laughs> I was going to do that, is that some of the best scholars are activists. I mean, just today, we learned the news that Ibram X. Kendi is leaving American University for Boston University to set up a research center but if you listen to his interviews and you read his work, not just how to be an anti-racist, which is wonderful, but a number of his other work, there's an activist streak in there. But it's also informed by his work being in the community with people who are experiencing it and activating against some of the injustices that they're experiencing. Michael Eric Dyson, rock star academic, phenomenal researcher and writer, also an activist. So we have examples of how this works very well in terms of informing the research. And then we know sometimes academic institutions can also be very hardline business entities. It's good for business when you produce research that extends beyond the ivory tower that people on the street can take in, can understand, can use in their daily lives, that policy writers can interpret and actually affect change. When I teach, and you know, sometimes their feelings get a little bit bruised, but at the end of it, they always appreciate this. When I open a class and we have a paper, I ask, like, why are you writing that? And who are you writing it for? Are you writing it for this construct that we call the academy? Or are you trying to change something? Are you trying to introduce something new? And you have to make that decision before you put pen to paper. And that's informed by all kinds of experiences, including activism. Um, what kind of responses do you get? It's usually, if it's 30 students in a class, about a third of them are a bit shell-shocked. Because that's also not the language of the academy, and I'm very self-aware of, of that when I say that in very pragmatic terms. About a third are have been waiting for someone to give them permission to not continue the same exercise of, I wrote this, but I'm not really sure if it's gonna move the needle. And then the other third are, I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing to take the leap. Mm -hmm. Generally by the end of class, if I have that same set of 30, and all honestly, I'll have four or five that are, will openly you know, recognize, and this is important, like I feel better in the academy, in this space of objective skepticism, and that's what I want to do, professor. And I'm like, that's okay. I appreciate self-reflection and, and internal con <laughs> being internally congruent. And the rest of them are saying, like, 
I didn't realize I could be both or all of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so now this is, this is what I want to do. And similar responses, you know, advocating for students inside the academy to make sure that they have the space to express themselves that way. Because oftentimes administrators and some of my other colleagues have not been exposed to this concept. They've not met someone like Felicia Henry before and don't quite ready, know, don't know how to receive it or how to grow a student like that. So that's something that there's advocacy outside of the realm of the academy, but then there's doing advocacy work inside for those of us that have a responsibility for helping students develop to their fullest self of advocating for them to have space to do that. And if that means, you know, going out and being an activist and right. go do some good field work and learn what is about to be an activist before you write about it. Right. It, th- that really resonates. My colleague, Kim Fortune, always advocates this and brings me back to this, that we should never undervalue the importance of, as educators, even of teaching in classes where we might have students, you know, like I teach a lot of engineering students. They might have one history class in their time of college, but you can introduce powerful concepts even in that moment that might make them understand that the object of their work as engineers in the world might not be exactly what it was, or that, as you said, they've never been invited to think about what the object of engineering is, the broader object, let's say. Yeah. Um, and those discussions, as it turns out, can be very powerful. But thinking about action at very different scales. I mean, even in the last 10 minutes of this conversation, you both described action at very different scales um, that can all be impactful. I want to get to a point that's made here and kind of think about it as a question. One of our um, viewers, Irene Conforti, is asking, uh, saying emergency support functions are not always organized in a way that makes sense. She encourages us to think about preparedness differently at the federal level. And I want to think about that with you both also back to this, just kind of this question of of the number of fingers maybe being raised. Monica, you were saying before, who's in the room? Representation. Um, you know, I've wondered in these days particularly, what would it mean to have an African-American administrator of, of FEMA? Uh, at this time, would, would would this somehow be different, and and not in some sort of just token sense, but in a more meaningful sense? How would the kinds of questions being framed right now uh, in the role of emergency management be different? So, I, just to come back to Irene's, you know, question: what what kind of things do you think need to change right now at the federal level about emergency preparedness? Well, if anyone wants some recommendations for an African-American candidate for FEMA administrator, I know some wonderful big city and statewide emergency management professionals that yes. happen to be African-American. That would be who phenomenal. You, who, who, do you, who would you endorse? The co-founders of the Institute for Diversity and Emergency Management, Chauncea Willis, one of the first women to do the job. She framed the concept of co-locating emergency managers and security professionals in mass scale events like the Super Bowl and the Olympics. Curtis Brown, who's now the statewide emergency manager for the Commonwealth of Virginia, that I breathe the sigh of relief because he gets that. Black women are disproportionately care workers in these nursing homes that are pockets of the outbreak in Virginia. And that we really need to look at that if we're going to make a forward progress on getting the number of cases down. Um, 
you've got Preston Cook, who's in North Carolina, that's now a consultant, has a ton of experience running large scale operations that we don't know their names, you know, unless someone says it or unless you've gone looking for their organizations, but are all phenomenal qualified people who could step into that role and, and change the conversation in a really informed way, in a way that people can hear it based on ground level experience doing these kinds of events. Um, so you need that kind of understanding. In the example that you know, Felicia's given many times about the community first, about what we term cultural competency, um, it would shift how we prioritize those ESF functions. Um, you know, I know the internal sausage making of how they get to be numbered that way. And the, again, that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but they could stand some reorganization and probably framing it around equity would be a good way of rethinking them. And you would need the right kind of person to do that. I hope somebody from Joe Biden campaign is listening to this and, and maybe we'll just take this transcript and send it to them. I, I actually hope um, and let's uh, I hope somebody from the. Donald Trump campaign is listening too. I mean, I think this is, doesn't have to be a partisan issue at all. It shouldn't be. Um, and but it's disappointing when I hear the acting head of, of Department of Homeland Security say that he doesn't believe structural racism exists in in police departments in America. He wasn't speaking to emergency management specifically, but that's disappointing. And I think just as you said, if if we had a FEMA administrator who could more directly raise these issues of equity. I'm not sure that you would find a DHS secretary willing to use that kind of language so loosely. Felicia, this question at the federal level for you, maybe even thinking about sort of federal um, prison policy or anything that you may be interested in along those lines where you'd like to see some reform? Yeah, I think likewise, I would definitely advocate for black and brown folks to be at the head and um, to be at the table. Because I think because of those experiences that we experience on a daily, just as our own selves, but then also in our professional spaces, um, we can bring a lens to the work that allows us to think a little bit bigger and a little, uh, a little uh, kind of more wide in terms of, of what, what kind of policies might look um, the best. But I also think that even outside of that, folks that are black and brown at the table allow us never to forget that these institutions are steeped in whiteness, that are they're steeped in white supremacy, they're they're steeped in in violence. And so I always get wary of when, you know, folks are like, yeah, we should just get uh, you know, if we had a black president, everything would be, you know, great. But that's not the way these things work, right? But it's important because what that does is always calls our attention to the fact that even if the most powerful man in the United States isn't a black man, that doesn't necessarily mean that structural racism is going to go out the door. It does, however, allow us to remember that structural racism is in place. So I think for me, um, yeah, I would advocate this, this, likewise what Monica is advocating in terms of hope. Um, black and brown folks being at the head, but I think that it is not just because they deserve that representation and are highly qualified for it, but also because they allow us to remember how these systems work um, to disproportionately impact black and brown populations. We're we're pretty much up on, on time. I just want to get one last quick word from each of you, something that's giving you some um, optimism in this moment, something that's keeping you going in this moment as we face this very complicated pandemic, racist, 
and now economic downturn moment in America all converged into one mass emergency. Monica, where are you drawing some some hope and inspiration at this time? From the wonderful young people that I get to work with. Every time I'm in class, I have the privilege of teaching hazard economics at Georgetown this summer. So I'm seeing people really think about the economic piece of it. I get to be with the wonderful Bill Anderson Fund fellows that, you know, while we're sitting in the midst of what feels like chaos right now, I'm like, there are people hard at work at building a better future for us. And they got this. So um, I'm feeling really optimistic about what they're going to be and what they're going to do in this world. That's a lot of pressure, Felicia. <laughs> but I'm right there with Monica. That's the same answer I would give. My students always look at me like, come on. But yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. What about you, Felicia? No, I agree. I think what brings me, uh, kind of allows me to keep going. One, I celebrate uh, the small victories and I celebrate the ability to still have joy, right? So uh, when I see on social media these uh, videos of like, let's say the protests and there are folks like dancing in the middle of the street and like having a fun time in what is literally chaos, it gives me joy because it, it allows me to recognize like, yes, things can be chaotic, but you can still have joy. You can still have um, happiness. And I don't think that those are we kind of use them as like frilly terms, but I think that they are very important as kind of a means of activism in themselves to be able to still kind of contain hope and carry hope in the middle of, of what is chaotic. Um, but also, yes, I think being on, on calls like this with uh, Monica and listening to her and, and really importantly, uh, being surrounded by communities that are thinking about these things very, very um, intricately, being intentional about the work. Those are the things that allow me to keep going. And even the, my essay, like that was my kind of way of saying, you know what? Yes, this is crazy, but let me put, you know, let me put some words to it because after putting words to it, I know that it can exist, you know, outside of me and, and bigger than me. So I think that that my part to play makes me like, okay, you know, we can still do this. I have one part. I don't have to be concerned about the entire world. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls. I want to make sure you know that you can check out uh, Felicia Henry's writing. Uh, you can find it um, on Medium, and you can also find it on the sociology website at the University of Delaware. That's right. And also on the Facebook page of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. And Monica, we can find out more about the Bill Anderson Fund, also the University of Delaware Correct. website. And they baf.udel.edu. I would love for everybody to take a look at that. I think it would be great if people um, were educated about the just the, this really important inflection, time of inflection that we're at right now. And I think um, just honored to have spoken with both of you. This hour just totally flew by. Uh, and uh, so Felicia Henry and Monica Sanders, thanks a million for making time for this conversation. Well, thank you for having us. Stay healthy, everyone. You can check out COVID calls every weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. And we will talk to you tomorrow.